This is Jason Burby, co-author of Does It Work? 10 Principles for Delivering True Business Value in Digital Marketing. You are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which was named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer in 2016. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Today, we're joined by Jason Burby, and we're going to talk about the book he has co-authored with Shane Acheson, Does It Work? 10 Principles for Delivering True Business Value in Digital Marketing. Jason Burby is the president of the Americas region for the digital agency Possible, which is part of the holding company WPP. Jason has over 20 years experience in digital strategy, and he has been using data to inform digital strategies to help clients attract, convert, and retain customers long before it was the cool thing to do. He's also the co-author of Actionable Web Analytics, Using Data to Make Smart Business Decisions. Jason, congratulations on Does It Work? And welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much. So as you heard in the intro, uh, one of the spirit of this podcast is about trying to help people understand what's actually working in modern marketing. So I think the title of your book is going to win the award for that. It's a good match, that's for sure. Yeah, Does It Work, which is such a great title. And, you know, I think most marketers are going to, and certainly business people who are, you know, held accountable for things are going to, are going to want to know. You know, in other words, it's often that question always seems to be cloaked in, well, what's the ROI? Or, I mean, people just want to know if it's, if it's working or not. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. There's the old saying of uh, 50% of my marketing or advertising is working. I just don't know which 50%. And as you look at uh, what marketers face today, there's so many different options. When you look across some of the traditional things like like broadcast TV elsewhere into digital and beyond into social and mobile and experiences, there's so many more avenues that advertisers, brands can take to connect with their audiences that it just makes a, a problem considerably worse for many marketers in terms of understanding that 50%. Yeah. So your firm is part of the the WPP group, which I, I, I gather is almost 200,000 people in 112 countries and uh, over 3,000 firms. And the CEO is Sir Martin Sorrell. Yes. And he wrote the foreword to the book. And I, in, uh, in the 80s, when I started out in my ad career, and I was an assistant account executive at J. Walter Thompson in New York. And that was after, right after they had been bought by WPP, which I, I would argue that was their first really big acquisition. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. He and I would ride the uh, elevator together. Not that he ever knew this because I knew better than to establish eye contact with him. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. He was a, He's he's done a, a phenomenal job, and it's just really amazing to watch. But I remember one day he decided or he he got in a conversation with somebody. You know, we had a, a cafeteria on one floor, and the door the cafeteria door opened, and Sir Martin Sorrell was there on the elevator with the rest of us. And it was usually pretty quiet when he was on the elevator. And uh, this one guy got on, and Martin Sorrell, you know, chatted him up and said, "So, you know, do you, do you work at J. Walter Thompson?" And he said, "Yeah." It was a young uh, young guy. And he said, what, what do you do there? And I guess, you know, the guy didn't know who he was talking to. And he says, oh, I'm a 
assistant media planner. I just started here. And he said, well, how do you like it? He says, ah, works pretty good, but the pace sucks. <laughs> Ouch. Well, you know what? Martin Sorrell, he's a pretty shrewd businessman. He, it was probably a message to him like, yep, yep, things are going well. It's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that uh, that's funny. Explain, if you could, what you mean in this book, as well as your last book, that the biggest problem with analytics is that by themselves, many of the success metrics people are using, like impressions or page views or time spent on site, are largely meaningless. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. We refer to them as vanity metrics. They're often the metrics that come out of, uh, that are easy to get. Right, that someone like a uh, a media channel or a Facebook would would give you. It's the first thing they bubble up to, or what you can get out of some of your business intelligence or analytics tools. It's those easy to get things, and what we've found is, well, something like impressions, you surely need to to keep an eye on, and some of these other vanity metrics. What they don't do is typically give you insight in what you need to change. What can you do to take action on some of these things? So, what we really push for is let's not define our metrics based on what's available in the tools or what the salesperson for a, uh, a specific tool set or media channel has given us. But rather, let's start with what we're trying to accomplish. What's the true business goal of what we're trying to do? And then look to craft. What are the metrics we need to not only understand how we're doing, but identify where there's opportunities to improve. And so it's a slightly different way of coming towards it. But what it does is it puts the what's the true business impact we're trying to make at the forefront and then everything else behind that, again, with the focus on taking action and and improving whatever you're doing. Now, at the very end of your book, you include this Forrester study, CMOs need to make digital marketing work. Can you explain that and, and, and its relation to the book? Yeah, you bet. You know, when we we started, um, we started on this book idea, and and we uh, started coming up with principles. We ended up at ten principles. For a while, we had more. For a while, we had less. And uh, we did a couple interesting things. One was the the Forrester study. We commissioned Forrester to talk to CMOs from around the world and look at what were their biggest issues, what were they facing, what were they concerned about, and that helped us shape the ten principles. We also talked to about seventy thought leaders from around the world and understanding what they're saying. These are people within media, within agencies, a lot within brands, um, some within uh, technology companies, and hearing what they're looking at. And then we pulled in some of our 1,200 employees at Possible and talked about what they were seeing with clients, what they've seen on the front lines, what they've seen at past jobs. And all of those things together helped us create and fine-tune what the 10 principles were, and how we begin to morph across those. There were some that we thought were pretty big issues. And then when we talked to those three sets, again, our employee set, our, the thought leadership set, and based on the Forrester study, weren't things that were coming up. And there were others that we thought, hey, this could be interesting, that were talked about in all three of those sets. So that is a lot of the research and a lot of the findings that we help bring to the table to determine what the 10 principles were. And then most importantly, um, what you need to do to really bring those 10 principles to life. And in reading the book, there's two authors' names on the cover, but it really seemed to be you know, kind of quasi-crowdsourced. There were so many people involved. Absolutely. And all those quotes, at the end of every chapter, you've got a couple of pages of these really interesting quotes from practitioners and some of your colleagues and others who are sort of reinforcing that. That was rather super concentrated <laughs> section after reading through that and then seeing what these other folks are are putting in there. It kind of had a, it was sort of a reality check 
Yeah, uh, that's that. That was the that was the intent. And you know, when you think about it, uh, while Shane and I have been in the business for quite some time, if we were only to share our knowledge and our expertise, it would be of, of much less value than pulling in these excerpts experts from from all over the world and so that again it's our names are on it but it is a um, there were many 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 people that contributed and inspired and gave ideas so all of the interviews we did we recorded we pulled quotes out we did different things and the same with the the internal folks that we we talked to and interviewed so there is a tremendous amount in there and then what we found is not necessarily all of the quotes at the end of each principle are a hundred percent in favor of exactly what we're saying in there some of them challenge and warn about you know be careful of not pushing this too far or one thing that you need to consider on this side and we felt that was really important to include as well and that allows us to um, to kind of again share that full view and really bring to life what people are seeing and feeling within the marketplace and industry yeah I think it added a lot of additional credibility. Thank you. You talk about the 10 principles. Can you explain, you don't have to go through all the principles, but explain this, the concept of how the book is organized. Yeah, you bet. You know, we, we started out, and again, what we wanted to focus on, um, because it's as we started off talking, this, this has become more and more of an issue for brands and marketers and advertisers of figuring out what is working. There's a lot of noise out there. You have so many different groups and different behaviors of, say, your younger millennial audience versus your longtime customers, uh, maybe more senior, that um, there, there's so many different challenges. And so what we wanted to do was look at what are the things that, that lead to success? What are the things that um, help our most successful clients or the most successful brands out there? What are the different things they're doing that are going to lead them there? And so we start the book off with a basic introduction, kind of summarizing the 10 principles. And then we go into each of the 10. And then we've got appendix. You mentioned Forrester study. We also have information on case study that we went really deep into that we believe was overly awarded uh, at award ceremonies that it didn't really drive a business impact. Everyone got excited about a bunch of people looking at something and it didn't make an impact to their goal. And, and so we, we dug deeper into that. And then, of course, looking at the contributors. But if you look at some of the principles, uh, some of the principles, the first one is business goals are everything. And that's the idea of it's intentionally the first one. That's the idea of let's really get in and understand what are we trying to accomplish. So it's not just about creating something cool or trying to do something on Snapchat or trying something new in Messenger. What is it we're really trying to do and making sure everything's going to ladder back to that? Another one, one of my favorite ones is, is data inspires creativity. And this is the, the third principle in there. And this is the idea around, you know, let's use data not to limit ideas or not to limit creative or not to limit what we can do, but rather to push the envelope and inspire it. And this has been something that's gone around and it's, it's happening less now. And, and we don't hire creatives that think this way. If, if you're scared of data, if you feel that data is going to hold you back or it's going to limit your ideas... That's the wrong way of looking at it. Rather, let's use data to drive insights and get smarter. So then when we actually do create something of a strategy and an experience that we know it's going to resonate and perform better. And so that's a, that's a, a really big one that, um, that we've had success with. Those are just a couple of, of examples. Another one is measure what matters. And that gets back to some of the, the vanity metrics uh, yes. where if you look at it, let's not, uh, let's not just take what the tools or vendors are providing. 
let's really dig into what matters and again, focus on that action. So we, we came up with those 10. Another fun thing we did within each of them is we did, we did short videos within each of them. And it's, they're all, they're all at the beginning of the chapter, there's a URL and they're, you know, one to two minute videos that kind of bring the concept to life, talk about the problem, talk about it. Um, those are all up on uh, our website, which is desertworkbook.com, and anyone can watch those videos and, and get a flavor for it. But what we wanted to do was was bring real-life stories. Many of them aren't marketing-based, but real-life stories, some of them historical going back a couple hundred years, others very recent, to bring to life what we mean by some of these problems. So our hope is as people read the book, they, they watch that, they, it kind of sets a foundation uh, as they start a principle, and then they can read through the, uh, the principle and understand more what it means. And then as you pointed out at the end, how do you take this and move forward? How do you activate this within your own reality? Uh, and what are, what are their thought leaders saying about it? The point about data inspires creativity, I remember back to Jay Walter, I can remember the creatives there, and they were, trust me, some of the best in the world, and they still are, I'm sure. And the the expression some of them would use was, you know, in referring to a creative brief, they kept saying, tight briefs liberate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in other words, let's get specific, because I want this to to be effective. And Absolutely. It, it also reminds me of an analogy I, I heard of from another book that's been on the show, The Big Data-Driven Business. And they talk about how data is using data now for marketing is like a soldier using night vision goggles. <laughs> you'd, you'd be stupid yeah. not to. Absolutely. So one one thing that that I on the data inspires creativity side because I, I do think that's interesting is um, you know we want to position it more as this allows us to do more for our clients. So if you think about how a lot of things work between an agency and a, a brand is we're bringing ideas internally within our organization. A bunch of ideas come up. They get whittled down and, and put into a group that then gets uh, more advanced and so forth, shown to a client, and then one is ultimately selected. If we're able to push the envelope and maybe push the client out of their comfort zone a little bit, that can be very hard to do if it's just a we think type of approach. We think this would work. If we can come in and back it up with data, and this is what our creatives have seen, and this is why they, they've fully embraced this idea, is instead of holding them back, it actually pushes them forward. It allows us to get our clients out of their comfort zone to try things that are quite, can be, can be more game-changing than status quo. And it allows us to do more interesting creative work because we can back it up. It's not a, hey, I think this is going to work. It's uh, we're doing this for these six reasons, and it's going to work well to accomplish the goals that we've already discussed in this way. You're going to have a lot greater success of getting people to do, again, get out of that safe area, get out of that comfort zone into something that's really going to make an impact in the world, in the business world. Yeah, and you know, talking about goals, at the risk of, of getting too simple, can you explain what a goal is? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. The, uh, what I, I will start by what a goal isn't. A goal for something is not we want to get 10 million impressions or we want to get 10 million clicks, right? What is an impression or a click? It, ultimately, the goal is are we looking to, are we trying to, and, and you can have different layers and levels of goals, right? Um, are we trying to get in to, um, you know, increase our revenue or profit is often where these are starting. Okay, how are we going to do that? Let's take a step, a step down a little bit further. We 
trying to increase order value? Are we trying to increase loyalty? What are we trying to do? And then begin to tie campaigns or initiatives up to some of those specifically where we can say, um, for this particular campaign, we're really looking at increasing the average order value or increasing the likelihood to buy offline, whatever it may be, uh, and then focus in on that specific goal. And then we can create all sorts of metrics under that that will help us understand what is working to support that goal, what is not, and what can we do again to once we're running something like this, what can we do to then take that information, act on it, and improve it on an ongoing basis. That's a, another principle we have is the idea of never, never stop improving. And that's that ongoing iteration. If we're going to spend a bunch of money to roll something out, let's make sure we're saving some resources, some dollars, whatever it may be, to quickly fine-tune, to adjust, to tailor it once we really see it live in the market to make sure we're getting the most out of every, every idea and initiative. Just explain for the listener, what's a KPI and how is that different from a goal? Yeah, you know, it's there's a lot of uh, there. I, I will tell you my opinion and, and kind of the way the way Shane and I think about it. Um, uh, we should explain KPI stands for Key Performance Indicator. Yes, and I, I would say a goal a goal must be tied to a business, and then you would have multiple KPIs underneath that goal. So I would see the and then underneath that you would have multiple metrics that may support a KPI. What happens is, and so if you think about it almost as a py- pyramid, the top of the pyramid you have your business goal. What are we trying to accomplish? The next layer down, you have a couple of KPIs that are are kind of the indicators, if you will. It's the I in KPI. It's the indicators of how are we doing against Your dashboard against so it. Speak. Yeah, yeah. And then underneath every KPI, so kind of think of it as the bottom of the pyramid. You have multiple metrics that then support each of the KPIs that again support that overall goal. What often happens is people skip that or assume the top of the pyramid. They're not really thinking much about across the middle of the pyramid, the KPIs, they'll maybe pick one or two of them. But again, if you're not laddering up to something, you're not going to be terribly effective at that layer. And then they over-focus on the metrics at the bottom. And the metrics, again, that's where you can get into some of those some of those vanity things that on their own don't matter. Combined with everything else, they do matter and they are necessary, but they're not that first thing you look at. So that's that's the way in which we think about it. You know, some of those metrics, some of those vanity metrics is the language we used earlier. Uh, not saying those aren't important. Some of those, it's just a matter of in relation to what, how are they used, what's the intent, and what sits above them. Yeah, they better be further down the pyramid. Absolutely. <laughs> so why do you typically suggest setting only three to five goals? You know, I think this is uh, this is something we do this for we, we try to live all of these things with our people with our clients as we make decisions internally. And this is something we do internally for goal setting for employees as we do our reviews on an ongoing basis and looking to, to grow our talent, which as a as an agency, all we have is our talent and how do we attract grow retain uh, great people. And so if you look at it, if you start to say, um, we have 10 goals for something, uh, you start having zero goals for something because everything gets splintered out. And so what we're really looking to do is how do we narrow it down so there's a clear focus so that if you think about something we're doing for a client, if we've got three, you know, three goals that we're trying to accomplish and maybe an individual campaign is only focusing on primarily on one of those, it really allows everyone involved on our side at the agency, 
on the brand side at the clients, everyone to stay really focused on what we're trying to accomplish. The more goals you end up having and trying to kind of cram into accomplish everything, you end up accomplishing nothing because the focus ends up being spread out. So we've we've found, and again, the studies that we did and the interviews we did supported it as well. Um, and there's been other other writings about this, of course, is really focusing in on just a few and making sure you're nailing those. And then moving on from there. The one thing I will point out is there can be the top three goals. There could be different flavors of those, three to five. There could be different flavors of those within the organization. So for possible, our agency, we've got, we have four of them right now. Four big things we're trying, trying to do and accomplish this year. Now, as we move down through the organization and, and look at different areas, uh, someone in our technology group, their three or four goals may not be the exact same as the overall three or four, but they will sure ladder up to say one or two of them. And so that's how we become, we've found within the organization, we use it that way again, same with clients, but that's how we've become more effective in really driving that throughout. So those, those different layers of goals could be different as long as they're all laddering up. It, one of the 10 principles, you talk about having a collective vision. And can you explain what touch point mapping is and why it's so important, particularly for marketing? Yeah, you know, touch, touch point mapping is a, a tool that, that we use when we talk about a fair amount within the, the a collective vision principle. But the idea is, and I'm going to oversimplify it here, but the idea is where, how and where and in what way are brands interacting with consumers, their target audience, whoever it may be. And it's really easy to simplify. And people used to talk about it as a funnel. Oh, there's a, you know, there's a awareness, you know, you prospect interested party all the way down to conversion. Um, it's absolutely, we know, not a linear, linear process. And the funnel has multiple entry points and, and exit points and people jumping back up and down and through the funnel. And so the idea of touch point mapping is really understanding from a, from a brand's perspective is how, where, and in what way are we interacting, are consumers interacting with the brand, and at what points in the buying process or cycle. Now, this I'd say even five, six years ago, uh, was much more simple than it is now. If you look at the interaction across mobile, within social, within all of the different platforms out there, as well as the owned, uh, as well as physical, as well as, I mean, there's so many different, and I'm talking about physical stores or physical interactions, there's so many different ways um, that brands interact with consumers. We've found that the touchpoint mapping can help bring Again, a collective view, so everyone's on the same page, collective view and understanding of where and how our consumers are interacting with us. And then we can start to pick what we believe are the most important areas that we can have the greatest impact. However, in doing that, we need to make sure this is not a silo. If we're, if we're focusing in one area, that doesn't mean that it replaces the others. And we must still consider as we're focusing on something, um, say we're focusing on something within social, we must still consider what they're seeing in the marketplace, what they're seeing physically in store, whatever it may be. So it, it allows us to, one, overall understand it, and two, helps remind everyone involved and get everyone moving in the same direction around how do these things interact? And when we pull one lever, what, are, what do we believe and what ultimately happens in some of these other, other potential touch points? Yes, and it seems like when a company goes through that process, there's invariably going to be surprises like, oh, I didn't realize that was happening. Or they don't look at it necessarily from the, uh, 
the mystery shopper or the customer's perspective. But it seems like touchpoint mapping or something akin to it is becoming increasingly important for companies who are trying to engineer just the experience that people have. You're, you're absolutely right, Nate. Experience is the word. That's that's really what you're talking about is how do you experience a brand? How do you interact with it? What is not what is everyone's experience? What is your experience as you as you go through it? Um, I, yeah, I think that I think that hits it spot on, and it is becoming more important, especially with the fragmentation of how people are interacting and um, working with brands. One of many lines uh, that kind of jumped right out at me. I want to quote and ask you a question. You say, "Great digital talent," and this uh, this has to do with, uh, I believe, the section on um, culture and the the types of employees. Great digital talent differs substantially from the kinds of people formerly found in marketing departments or traditional advertising agencies. What is a unicorn? Yeah, it, g- great question. And, and there, we've got two principles that that delve into this. And again, we believe the people side of this is so very important for both for an agency, but for marketing teams and how you work together. And, and again, that's why it's two of the, the 10 principles. One is called finding unicorns. The other is called culture predicts success and failure. And when we look at this, and when we look at the types of people we're looking for in unicorns, uh, unicorns is the rare breed of someone that can can understand data, can understand creativity, but can understand when they're working on, say, something within social or, or mobile or, or even a website, uh, understanding the implications that sit outside of that and the dependencies that sit outside of that and what's happening in store, what's happening in above-the-line media or broadcast media or display media, whatever it may be be and is really able to step back and consider all of those things you know the uh comment we make around around it's it's a different breed than in the past is you don't see a lot of folks coming from the say above the line world that is about the 30 second idea in tv spot they can just jump right over and understand digital and the reason is and many try and many claim they uh they have done it but you've seen um you know, digital agencies continue to grow and expand and be, have more control and more influence within um, brands than ever before. And in some cases, the digital agency leading the overall marketing strategy rather than being downstream from, you know, a, a big idea or 30-second commercial. And it comes back to something we just touched on, which is comes back to experience and comes back to what matters. If you look at the history of of TV and everything else, it was very one way. It was, we're going to tell you this in your 30-second TV spot, and this goes back to the beginning of TV, we're going to tell you this, and then you're going to go off and believe that. If that I call those is, the good old days, Jason. It, it, exactly, yes. Surely, surely simple, and we've all seen Mad Men and everything else. Surely, surely more simple than today, and surely effective in the time. But what we're seeing, and if you look across the different generations, and especially the the younger generation, I've got young kids who uh, who I don't know the last time they watched something on cable or turned on the TV, not to use it with Chromecast or pushing something from their phone or Netflix or whatever it may be. The the idea of TV resonating in terms of the TV spots resonating isn't or influencing isn't isn't even remotely relevant. It is about what they're seeing maybe on YouTube. It's about what they're um, seeing with their friends, what what they're seeing on Instagram or what their friends are talking about. And it's a collection of all those together. And so the idea of 
um, thinking that the big idea down through a 30 second TV spot and then, oh yeah, we'll just customize that for digital. That thinking almost always fails. And so when we look at this different breed, this different breed is really looking more about, uh, the, this experience and how do you, how do you engage and how do you build things over time and how do you get that interaction and how do you build that trust? And it's easy to say it's gone from one way to two way. And that is true. Um, but the the power and the control continues to shift, and it shifts away from the brand in many cases, and it shifts much more over into what really what really matters. Mm-hmm. And what really matters is that experience, that interaction, and that building over time. Yeah, it seems like the word digital is going to fade away. In other words, in the future, maybe in our work work lifetimes, you know, it won't be great digital talent, it'll be great marketing talent, and people will understand what that means instead of having to compare it to the last 75 years. Yeah, yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. And we, we often refer to ourselves not as a, uh, a digital agency, but a creative agency. Now, a brand that is going to hire possible to, do, to basically be the lead agency to run everything they're doing um, is going to be the type of, a, type of brand that uh, you know, digital is core and how they're connecting with their consumers. Of course, we do some broadcast work that ends up going to TV and other things, but it is the clients where we're running, you know, running things soup to nuts, not necessarily doing all the work, but running things soup to nuts in terms of the strategy, creative idea, and so forth. That is the brands and more and more falling into this category that really see the ability to connect in digital not being the only way, but being the primary way. And that's where things are beginning to shift. So if you look forward and, you know, one of uh, one of Martin Sorrell's big pushes over over the past couple of years is, you know, what are we doing within within digital? What are we doing within data? You know, getting agencies across WPP to work together to bring the best we possibly can to our clients. If you look at a lot of that, it, it comes back to the same thing, and it's how are we delivering those best experiences, solutions for our clients. And I do, I agree with you. Is digital will at the same time while it becomes more important and more of a, a core way that brands are connecting with their their audiences, it almost need, it it is needing to become what everyone's doing. The, the challenge with that is, is how do you get, how do you get some of this older thinking, older leadership willing to accept that the, uh, the big idea starting with a 30 second commercial isn't the way to go. And that's both on the agency side and the brand side to be, to be very clear. That's going to take time. That's going to take people who have, who have grown up through this, getting into those leadership positions, which we're seeing more and more and able to make an impact. And that's, that's going to be a transition over time, but it won't be smooth for won't be smooth for everyone. I think. I think um, you know we're we're positioned in a, a spot where we want to be and where we we believe we can bring the best solutions to our clients. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you're bringing up one of my favorite topics, which is as it relates to marketing change. You know, people are so terrified of it, and uh, it's true. It's going to take a while to uh, work it out. They're going to need uh, more funerals and retirements, and people who are able to uh, evolve before this becomes. Um, you know, second nature. Let me ask one other thing. Uh, one other line that just made me laugh. Not that you were trying to make me laugh, but because <laughs> I've been in the agency world ever since I mentioned earlier. You said marketing departments and agencies often get pushed one way and another by personalities who think they know right from wrong. And I want to ask you to explain what the the does it work throwdown is at your agency. 
Yeah, this is this is a fun thing. We've been doing this for years. Um, if we're rolling out, maybe uh, if we're rolling out a new campaign or a new initiative, and we're trying a few different things, we're putting it into testing. Maybe we launch a. Uh, you know, five different versions of something for different audiences is we will literally put up boards. We have, we have offices all over the world. Sometimes we'll do it with just within a single office, sometimes within a single region or, or sometimes across the, the world. And we will have people guess. And we do, it, we do it in a physical sense where people are initialing their name under which one they, they think is going to win. But we have people pick which creative version idea do they think is going to win. Which do they think is going to perform the better? Of course, we start with the, the business goal. Here's the here's very simply and clean. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Which of these is going to do the best job of accomplishing it? Head to head to head to head. And uh, it's interesting. Again, we've been doing this for years. Then we always give out fun prizes and awards to the person that that picks it and picks what level of impact is it going to make. So people write down and say, I believe uh, this one's going to perform the best and it's going to increase this. Uh, it's going to have this impact on this goal, 10% or whatever, maybe. And you provide them with what the goals are? Absolutely. Okay. We, that's, that's at the top of this sheet is here's what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, here's what we're rolling out, which one's going to perform the, the best and by how much. And you know, it was interesting when we first started doing this, uh, something happened the first couple times and we thought, oh, that's just kind of random and it's continued to happen in nearly every time we've done it. The more junior people, the people furthest from, including I'm, I'm taking a hit on this one myself, <laughs> the people- Leadership uh, by example. Exactly. The people, the more junior people um, have a much greater chance of picking what's going to be effective versus the more senior people. And what that started to tell us is if you're in a room and you uh, were presenting creative ideas or whatever it may be, and this can be internal or this can be a client, people may walk around and say, you know, I love the one with the girl in the, um, in the middle of the field holding the flower as an idea. And, or I love the one with the puppies running up to the camera over here. Or, um, you know, that one's kind of interesting. And they go around the room and talk about it. And the most senior person in the room says, you know, the one I really like is the one with the boat. The one with the boat, I think, really brings it up. And then, then other people in the room go, you know, what I like about the boat is, and people start kind of piling on and supporting that most senior person in the room. Uh-huh. Or yeah, that the same, same dynamic you see in a focus group where one person That's starts to take over. Absolutely. And then everyone's, um, you know, it kind of building up. We sometimes call it the big dog syndrome, where the big dog says what they like, and then, and then people build up on it. Or the big dog just flat out picks and says, we're going to go with this one. <laughs> and so the idea of the- I'm laughing uh, to keep from crying. Yes, exactly. The idea of the, the doesn't work throwdowns is, is exactly that, is let's, let's each say, and it's not about ego. I, I don't mind being wrong at all. And it, every time I'm wrong, it's, it's a learning opportunity. And so this helps us remind our people internally, as well as along with our clients of um, shifting my opinion, my belief into what, um, what is actually going to work and what is really going to go. And it, it starts to bring things back to, you know, less I feel that this and more to, um, you know, what's actually, what's actually going to work. And it also starts leveling the playing, playing field, right? It levels the playing field from the standpoint of um, not just going with that most senior person or the person who has the biggest title or who's been around the longest, but let's really start looking at ideas can come, great ideas can come from anywhere. Uh, it, it, great ideas that make a big business Im impact can come from anywhere. And it helps us all remind that, think about that, and again, learn from 
what's really working. Too often, things are thrown out there, launched. People celebrate because they've hit a deadline or launched something on time or something goes, quote, viral and they get uh, really excited about it and high five and celebrate and hug and maybe it wins a bunch of awards. And no one's asking the question of, okay, yeah, but what, what impact is it making to the business? Yeah. What consumers, how are they engaging, experiencing it? How are they feeling about it? So that's just one of the many tools we use to, to help expose some of those things. Yeah, and before we wrap up, could you quickly just tell the story about those two commercials that are sort of the flagship examples of the book about the public service announcements yeah, you know it's it's interesting. We start the uh, we start the book off, and in the introduction, we we talk about two uh, two case studies, and we pick two uh, public service announcement case studies for very specific reasons. Um, reason being because we can see the results because the results are published. Um, and the results are known things. So we compared two public service announcement campaigns over the last few years. One is for the British Heart Association, and it's around um, heart attacks and CPR and awareness. And um, this was done by a, a group out of the UK, and they looked at the lack of understanding. This is a couple of years ago, the lack of understanding of CPR and how to do it and what to do. And they came up with a really interesting campaign that used a local uh, football player over there who's kind of gone actor, a little kind of a gruff guy. And it ended up being the the corner to the idea is um, using chest compressions at the pace and speed of the song Stang Alive. And they ended up bringing this thing to life and showing it. And it had some success and took off. It had some success in terms of viral success. It took off, got millions of views, won some awards, but really made an impact. There were multiple people whose lives were saved that people directly referenced in the press. Hey, I, I just remembered Vinnie Jones, the football player. I remember Vinnie Jones and I sung Staying Alive in my head as I gave chest compressions, um, waiting for the paramedics to get there to save lives. Multiple, multiple people, when you looked at studies, it raised considerably directly the rate of awareness and comfort level of giving CPR um, multiple, multiple percentage points, which is very, very difficult to do. Again, it started at a low low baseline, but really had an impact. We compared that to what has been the most awarded PSA in history, um, uh, the Dumb Ways to Die campaign, which was a campaign out of uh, Victoria in Australia outside of Melbourne, for trains. And it was about train safety. And there was a, there has been and continues to be an issue of, of train safety, people riding on the tops of trains, getting hit by trains, unfortunately, as well as intentional suicide by trains. And it was a very clever campaign that had a very catchy song that took on, that had a bunch of people paying 99 cents for it, downloading it from iTunes. It had a game. It went and won multiple years at the Can Lions Creativity Festival, won multiple, multiple... Uh, gold lions and other awards. And we went back and we studied that. And again, we had multiple years of data that was all publicly available, that's all exposed in the book, and looked at what impact did this really make. It had close to 100 million views on YouTube for this. And and everyone talking about it and people humming, my kids downloaded the app and you could do some fun things and games. But when we really stepped back and looked at it, there were a couple interesting things. One, a bulk of the people that watched it have never and will never ride the Victoria train, the trains in, in, you know, outside of Melbourne. The other thing that was most interesting is the close calls, the injuries, and the deaths were not affected in any way based on this big, success, quote, successful awarded campaign. In fact, injuries and deaths, if anything, 
increased over the time. As it's winning awards in Cannes, there's articles being written in the, um, in the press in Melbourne talking about this new craze of people train surfing and riding on tops of the trains. And uh, there was someone that, that died in the funeral was, was literally the same week as this thing was winning awards. And so it, it was something that McGraw-Hill, our publisher, was a little bit uncomfortable initially of us uh, really pointing out that this was, should be considered a complete and utter failure. And so we had multiple outside people analyze it. We showed and sourced all of the data. As I mentioned earlier, it's in the appendix in the back of the book. Showed all of the math, all of the data, everything normalizing it out to show um, the lack of change over time. And, and what the reason we start with that and the reason we go deep into it is not to bash any campaign. Again, I, I enjoyed it and, and think it was very clever um, and like the campaign. The fact it didn't work is very important, but I still think it was a clever thing to, to try. Um, but the reason we pointed it out is, is as an industry, as marketers, we can celebrate things that are really fun, that are really cool, that really take off. We can over-celebrate that and not focus on what matters. And this is such a phenomenal example of everyone getting really excited and talking about something and, and congratulating each other and winning awards and people probably getting bonuses and raises based on it. And it's yeah, a lot it of uh, uh, creative that. directors' reels. Absolutely. Well, you know, my big takeaway was that they didn't follow that one principle about letting the data inspire the creativity. It's not like it, I almost got the impression uh, they were going to do something cool, but they didn't step back and say, well, what are the actual problems we're trying to solve here? Yep. You're, you're exactly right. And I would, I think it is data and creativity. I would step it back, though, even to the, the first principle in the book, that business goals are everything. What are we really trying to accomplish? You're collecting dollars. The client that's paying for this is, uh, is in Victoria, Melbourne. What are we really trying to accomplish from, from that? How are we best using their dollars to, to do what they need to do? Fact that it takes off virally worldwide, and we also studied, did it make an impact on train safety around the world, which it also did not have a, have a measurable impact on that. But really focusing in on what is the goal of this? And it shouldn't be to create something cool for the sake of cool. There can be things that are created that are cool that absolutely drive business goals. But cool needs to be secondary to um, or in support of rather what is that, that primary business goal. So let's wrap up. Jason, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? It's a great question. I think the the focus should be on looking at what is the impact. What is the what is the impact of everything we're doing to our business, near term and long term? Uh, so everything we're doing, how is it laddering up to what are we trying to accomplish as a business? And then let's have all sorts of fun with creativity and testing different ideas and pushing the envelope on things uh, and doing amazing work. But let's do it in service of of driving that overall goal, not the other way around. Uh, you know, that's, again, <laughs> kind of easy to explain, but I, I see companies missing that one crucial link. Constantly. It's, it's like Constantly. dot one and dot two uh, are not being connected. Yep. So what books have inspired your work and career? You know, there, there, there's been a, a couple of them that stand out. One, an oldie but goodie is, for me, is Freakonomics. Um, what I love about Freakonomics, not just the, the data side of it, but the unexpected impact or consequences um, that, that happen when certain decisions are made. And I think that is something that we see in the more complex world and evolving world of advertising and marketing and connecting with, with individuals and consumers is, uh, is really important. That's one. Another one... Um, 
um, more recently is the, the book Power of Habit. Um, you know, that focus on why we do what we do um, and really understanding how those interact. I, I love those types of those types of books. We'll make sure to link uh, put links to those in the show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? You know, one that I just started reading over the last couple of days that that is is quite interesting is is called the Fourth Industrial Revolution, and it's really looking at everything from uh, and that what they're describing as kind of the fourth is ubiquitous mobile supercomputing, uh, artificial intelligence, all of these things coming together. I mean, you can look at self driving cars, all of these things. Um, how are they all coming together and causing a shift in the way that we all interact with each other? How we live our daily lives, each of each of those. So I'm I'm just getting into it. Uh, it's one I've been wanting to read for a little while, um, but it's already quite uh, quite interesting in terms of the the shifts that it's um, that it's talking oh, about. That sounds uh, pretty juicy. <laughs> yes. So how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Yeah, a, a couple of ways. Uh, one I mentioned it earlier. Uh, Does it work? where we have links to the videos, talks a little bit about it, goes a little deeper into some of the content, uh, or simply going to uh, possible.com, where we have even more information, and it does link over to the doesitworkbook.com site. Um, those, are, those are great ways. People can also feel free to reach out to me on uh, LinkedIn just by uh, looking up Jason Burby. Um, but I would, I would start with possible.com to learn more about the book and... and um, some of the different things we're doing to support yeah, the it. The videos are really terrific. And just to make it a little bit easier for the listener, I'm going to have links on the show notes that go straight to those specific pages about the sections of the book. And then from there, they're, they're going to explore all the rest of it. Wonderful. So the name of the book is Does It Work? 10 Principles for Delivering True Business Value in Digital Marketing. The authors are Jason Burby and Shane Acheson. Jason, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed our discussion. And that closes the book on episode 102 of the Marketing Book Podcast. But please don't let the end of this episode be the end of what you can learn about modern marketing. Visit marketingbookpodcast.com for links to all the things we talked about in this interview and free marketing guides for my agency. And while there, make sure to sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if you're looking for a book recommendation or have a question or a guest suggestion, here's how to get in touch. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and send a message or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle at marketingbook. And please join us next time as we welcome Shama Hyder back to the show to talk about her awesome new book, Momentum, How to Propel Your Marketing and Transform Your Brand in the Digital Age. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.